President Biden says the U.S. had no involvement in last weekend's power struggle in Russia. The fallout from that event is still unclear. It's Tuesday, June 27th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, as the Supreme Court weighs a Harvard case that could ban affirmative action, a look at a similar 1996 ban in California. We can get a pretty good sense of the long-run ramifications of affirmative action bans by seeing what happened in California. Also this hour, research out of Harvard finds the Biden administration's new immigration court in Boston is showing poor results. What we found is that asylum seekers who have been assigned to the dedicated docket in Boston are less likely to obtain asylum. And we hear from the outgoing diversity officer at the State Department, the first person to ever have that role. Rain and storms possible throughout the day today, near 80. It's 7.01, now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Korva Coleman. Russian President Vladimir Putin insists Russian society stands together with him following an aborted rebellion last weekend by Wagner Group mercenaries. Belarusian President Alexander Lukashenko helped mediate a peaceful resolution, and the Wagner Group leader is supposed to go to that country. In a speech late last night, Putin thanked Lukashenko. He's heard here through a CNN interpreter. I'm grateful to the president of Belarus, Alexander Lukashenko, for his efforts and his contribution for this peaceful resolution. But I repeat that these this patriotism of the Russian society made a decisive step and made it possible for us together to overcome the most difficult situation. Meanwhile, today, Putin is thanking Russian military officers in Moscow for their work to stop a Russian civil war. A longtime aide to former President Donald Trump is scheduled to appear in a federal courtroom in Florida today for arraignment. NPR's Kerry Johnson reports he faces charges alongside Trump in the secret documents case. Walt Nauta is expected to plead not guilty to conspiracy and false statements charges. Nauta faces six felony counts for allegedly helping former President Trump hide boxes of government secrets from federal investigators. Prosecutors say he lied to the FBI during an interview last year. Special counsel Jack Smith is asking a judge to start the trial for both men this December. But Trump's lawyers are likely to file a series of motions to exclude evidence in the case. That could push the trial into the height of primary season for the 2024 presidential race. Carrie Johnson, NPR News, Washington. Florida prosecutors say they do not have adequate evidence to upgrade charges against a white woman accused of shooting and killing her black unarmed neighbor. She fired through a door in a dispute involving the victim's children. From member station WMFE, Daniel Pryor reports the suspect has been charged with manslaughter despite objections from the victim's family. Ajika A.J. Owens, an unarmed mother of four, was shot and killed by Susan Lorenz earlier this month in Ocala. Marion County Attorney William Gladson said there was not sufficient evidence of, quote, hatred, spite, or evil intent toward the victim to warrant a murder conviction. Instead, she faces one count of manslaughter with a firearm and one count of assault. She could face up to a 30-year sentence. Family members had been calling on Gladson to upgrade the charge to murder. In a statement, the family said they're deeply disappointed, but, quote, our resolve remains unwavering and will continue to fight. For NPR News, I'm Danielle Pryor in Orlando.
You're listening to NPR News. I'm Rupa Shanoi. This is WBUR in Boston. A man is in custody in connection with the murders of a couple in their 70s and a woman in her 90s in Newton. Police say they arrested 41-year-old Christopher Ferguson last night. He's due in court today on charges of murder and assault. Newton Police Chief John Carmichael says so far there's no connection between Ferguson and the victims who were killed Sunday. Newton is a safe city. Uh, However, uh, this is a reminder that senseless acts of violence uh, do take place in cities such as ours. Um, But it is very important that we remain vigilant. Officials expect Ferguson to face additional charges after all autopsies are complete. Governor Healy will address the Irish Senate in Dublin today. The speech is meant to commemorate the 30th anniversary of the decriminalization of homosexuality in that country. Healy is also taking part in several meetings to help economic development between Massachusetts and Irish companies. This is her first international trip since taking office. Boston officials are preparing for some big transportation projects that may cause headaches this summer. The Sumner Tunnel will be closed for nearly all of July and August, and the B branch of the Green Line will shut down for nearly two weeks next month. More now from WBUR's Steve Brown. Mayor Michelle Wu says she knows the work is inconvenient, but she's glad the Healy administration is making the fixes. As for the shutdown of the Green Line's B branch, Wu says something has to be done. I think we had the same sentiment when it came to the Orange Line shutdown. Better to make the fixes before something horrible happens. And unfortunately, we've had far too many examples, as it already stands, of injury or worse. Regarding the Sumner Tunnel repairs, Wu says a shutdown like this would not be necessary if things had been done differently decades ago. She says free Blue Line service and additional water shuttles should ease some of the inconvenience. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Steve Brown. A Boston attorney who ran for Congress is facing fraud charges. The U.S. Attorney's Office says 50-year-old Abhijit Das defrauded clients of millions of dollars. He is accused of using the money to fund personal expenses, including a yacht. Yesterday, a jury indicted him on 10 counts of wire fraud. Each charge comes with a prison sentence of up to 20 years. It's 706. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Babson College. The Babson MBA helps you become a professional who takes action, leads with confidence, and tackles complex global challenges. Acquire the highly sought-after entrepreneurial mindset with a Babson MBA, ranked number one in entrepreneurship by U.S. News & World Report. Visit babson.edu slash mba. The Red Sox host the Miami Marlins tonight at Fenway, and Bruins captain Patrice Bergeron won his sixth Defensive Player of the Year trophy at the NHL Awards last night. Linus Allmark was awarded as Best Goaltender, and Jim Montgomery was named Coach of the Year. Cloudy and near 80 today. We could see showers or storms this afternoon. Mostly cloudy tonight with more showers possible. Temperatures will drop into the 60s. Cloudy with showers and storms again tomorrow in the lower 80s. Right now it's 70 degrees in Boston. Thanks for starting your day with WBUR. WBUR supporters include Heather Sturt Haga and Paul G. Haga, supporting African Wildlife Foundation, working to ensure wildlife and wild lands thrive in modern Africa. Learn more at awf.org. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Leila Faldin. Two presidents are talking of a mutiny in Russia. 
President Biden commented after staying carefully silent for days. We'll hear him in a moment. Russia's Vladimir Putin also fell silent for a couple of days, but then he gave a speech about the private military contractors who briefly marched toward Moscow. Yevgeny Prigozhin, the head of the Wagner Group, called off his advance and accepted exile in Belarus. NPR's Charles Maines joins us now from Moscow to discuss. Hi, Charles. Hi there. So what did Putin say to the Russian people? You know, state media initially reported Putin's spokesman had billed this speech as determining the fate of Russia. Uh, the spokesman now says he never used those words. Uh, either way, this address seemed less about the future of the country and more about Putin reasserting control, uh, placing himself back at the center of events. The Russian leader was visibly still angry about the uprising, uh, denouncing the leaders of the insurrection as criminals, but making clear that he, Putin, had been firmly in charge the whole time. Let's listen. So here Putin says that from the very outset of events, he gave direct orders that steps should be taken to minimize bloodshed. Uh, but that had required time, mainly for the Wagner fighters to realize the mistake they'd made and the futility of the uprising. Now, Putin also said this deal for Wagner, this amnesty initially brokered by the leader of Belarus, was in fact Putin's idea. Uh, Wagner fighters, Putin said, now had a choice. They could sign up with the military, uh, go home to their families, or choose exile in Belarus, uh, where Wagner's leader, Yevgeny Prigozhin, that's Putin's former ally who led the rebellion and who the president did not mention by name in his speech, has also been offered safe passage. So what do we know about Prigozhin at this point? Has he taken the deal? Do we know where he is? Yeah, uh, Belarusian media today reported that a plane believed to be used by Prigozhin uh, landed in Minsk, the capital of Belarus, this morning. Uh, also, Russia's Federal Security Services, the FSB, announced this morning they dropped this insurrection charge against Prigozhin and the rest of the Wagner fighters. Uh, the question now seems to be whether Prigozhin will keep his end of whatever bargain he made with Putin. Uh, yesterday, Prigozhin issued a mea culpa on social media in which he basically said this was all a big misunderstanding, uh, that Wagner was protesting a decision that would put them under the authority of the defense ministry leadership, uh, leadership they consider incompetent, uh, but they had never had any desire to overthrow the government or challenge the Russian leader. It feels like as, as quick as it started, it ended. So is all this really over at this point? You know, it, it, it does seem too tidy an end to what's been a really messy subplot of infighting between Prigozhin and the military leadership amid the war in Ukraine. Mm. Uh, lost in all the, the political intrigue here is the fact that as many as 15 Russian servicemen were killed in fighting between Wagner and the army as Prigozhin's mercenary led this uh, Mad Max-style run on Moscow Saturday. Mm. Uh, also, the, the initial reason for all this, you know, these Wagner allegations of incompetence by the top brass are still out there left to fester. Yet in his comments yesterday, Prigozhin said the ease of Wagner's move into Russia, seizing a major city in the south and then moving on to the capital, was all the proof you needed. And yet President Putin met with his top security officials, including the defense minister, Sergei Shoigu, who's been on the receiving end of Prigozhin's ire this whole time, and basically told them, job well done. And actually, the Kremlin seems to be pushing the idea that this whole episode is in a way something to celebrate, that, that Russia's enemies wanted the country to descend into civil war, and instead Russians had come together and stopped it. You know, they passed the test when it mattered most. NPR's Charles Maines in Moscow. Charles, thank you. Thank you. President Biden says he made a video call to allies over the weekend to deliver a message about the mutiny. We were not involved. We had nothing to do with it. This was part of a struggle within the Russian system. So what does it mean for the conflict where the United States is involved? The war in Ukraine 
and the larger competition with Russia. Representative Alyssa Slotkin of Michigan is a former CIA intelligence officer, now on the Armed Services Committee in the House of Representatives, and she joins us from Michigan. Good morning. Morning. Thanks for having okay. me. This mutiny obviously seems bad for Putin, but is it helpful to U.S. interests? Well, look, I mean, I think this whole episode, and you've been talking about the swirl um, of what's still happening, the whole episode to me is the greatest signal we have of Putin's folly in trying to invade the entirety of Ukraine. I mean, a year and a half after he goes in, um, you know, you have Russians fighting Russians on Russian soil. And, you know, as someone who worked alongside the military, when you have a good operational plan, good morale, a clear chain of command, and you're involved in a military conflict, then you don't start fighting each other. You know, you don't bring in a mercenary force to help you. You don't bring in a country like Iran to help training, to help train your troops. So uh, uh, to me, it's just a really visible signal that what they're trying to do in Ukraine is faltering. And I think that's important given where the U.S. is on supporting the Ukrainians. Uh, their frustrations in Ukraine are pretty obvious. But let me try out an alternate reading of this, which I guess would say that Vladimir Putin is still in charge in Russia. He wanted, it seems, to take over the Wagner Group soldiers and make them sign contracts for the Russian military. He's now got Prigozhin out of the way, and he has the Wagner Group soldiers. Is it possible that Putin just endures this and goes on? Well, sure. I don't, I don't think anyone's saying that Putin's about to fall. But I think when you have a reputation as a strongman, and that's your whole shtick, and then that something like this happens, very visible, that you can't, you know, despite your attempts, you can't spin um, out of, you know, existence, I think it, it is a real chink in the armor, especially in a country where it's really taboo to talk about how badly, you know, the war is going. So I, I think it's an important data point. I don't think Putin's about to be out of power, but I think it's a major chink in the armor that calls into question question his overall control of the war effort. Very interesting quote from a Russian newspaper editor with links to the Kremlin in the New York Times this week saying that this episode had cracked the elite's faith that Putin could protect their wealth and their power. Do you think that Putin is diminished at home by this? I mean, I, I don't think there's any other way other to, uh, other than to see it as a diminishment of him. I, I think it's just, you know, again, you, he has a reputation of being a tough guy. And, you know, he, he, that is sort of his thing. And for me, this is, you know, it's been 30 plus years since we've had Russians fighting Russians on Russian soil. So, you know, his desire to go down in the, in the annals of history as one of the great leaders of Russia, this does not help his case. And if you're an elite who's been protected, then you should be thinking about whether, you know, his power is still as strong as it was before. I guess Russia has yet to show any way that they could win the war in Ukraine. But let me ask the opposite question as Ukraine tries to ramp up this offensive. Do you believe Ukraine can win? And if so, what is winning? Yeah, I think I think this summer offensive that the Ukrainians are on is really, really important. And what what we're hoping for um, and this opportunity with what's going on in the confusion in Russia, I think, helps this case is we want to change the status quo in Ukraine by the end of the summer. We want them to make important gains. We want them to take back territory, change the status quo so that the Ukrainians feel in a position of power, a strength, and they can come to the negotiating table. I don't think anyone ever believed that the Ukrainians would do as well as they've done. It's a credit to them. But the ability to completely rid Russia of every from every inch of their soil is, is might be a bridge too far. But we want them to have the strength to get to a negotiating table. Um, and I think that that's an, uh, an open opportunity this summer. Uh, let me ask about the debate in Congress over supporting Ukraine. As you know, it's been a very bipartisan matter up to now, but some Republicans 
have been uh, openly supportive of Russia or have been skeptical of U.S. aid to Ukraine, have been skeptical, certainly, of the Biden administration. And Speaker McCarthy has spoken in broad terms of, of not wanting to be open-ended necessarily about support for Ukraine. Do you believe that there is sufficiently strong bipartisan support in the House of Representatives to pass whatever Ukraine may need in the months and years ahead? Well, I think that there's definitely a core group of people who, uh, you know, have sort of a, a focus on national security, who understand the symbol that Ukraine is and, and, and the importance of showing that we stand up when a democracy is invaded. That's an important message to send to Ukraine, to others in the area, but also to, to countries like China. So I think that there is a core group, but I, I will be very honest. I mean, I, in, I'm here in Michigan. I'll go to parades and there are people who are, want us to stop sending aid to Ukraine. I mean, it's definitely up to leaders to make the case and that long play um, rather than to just sort of be a populist and, and take what people are saying and saying we got to get out. Um, but it, that's going to be a struggle in the next few months. We got to keep that coalition of bipartisan members together. Representative Alyssa Slotkin of Michigan, thanks so much. Thank you. Great works of art are often auctioned off to the mega rich in lavish showrooms with champagne. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to Sotheby's. Although a company in Liechtenstein says it has come up with a new way to buy art that sounds a little more like this. Sound of a stock exchange, I guess. Artex plans to sell shares in a 1963 oil painting on three panels by the late artist Francis Bacon, and it has set up an initial public offering, or IPO. For $55 million. The company says it wants more people to be able to collect art. We asked art critic and author Blake Gopnik whether it's a good investment. All the numbers you hear about how much works of art go up are really have to be taken with a grain of salt. There's certainly some works that go up a whole lot, but lately actually art hasn't been going up as much as it used to. So it, it's actually right now not necessarily the best investment anyone could have. Nevertheless, you too have a chance to buy a share in this painting. So is that the same thing as collecting art? You don't get the work of art. It's actually kind of weird. It's more like buying, I don't know, shares in a, uh, in a baseball card in that it really has nothing to do with whether uh, Francis Bacon is a good artist or not or whether this particular work, this three studies for portrait of George Dyer is good art or not. But what if the whole undertaking, the IPO itself, is art? When I first heard about this whole IPO business, I actually thought it might have been an actual work of art. Gopnik notes that Andy Warhol coined the term business art to describe the naked commercialism, the buying and selling of masterpieces. And more than 50 years ago, Warhol said he wanted to sell shares of Andy Warhol Enterprises Incorporated on the stock market. Now his dream has sort of come true. This is NPR News. Good morning. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Thanks for starting your Tuesday with WBOR coming up in 15 minutes on Morning Edition as we prepare for a decision from the U.S. Supreme Court on affirmative action in higher education. We hear about what happened in California after that state banned affirmative action in public schools in 1996. It's 719. Turn your old car into new news. Support the programming you love by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Learn how at WBUR.org cars. 
Hey, it's A. Martinez from Morning Edition. Waking up your body every morning is hard enough, so why not make waking up your mind easier? Every morning, we bring you the latest news and headlines, plus a little something to make you smile, think, maybe even laugh, so you can get those neurons fired up for the day ahead. So wake up your brain with us. Listen to Morning Edition from NPR News every weekday. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by BMW. The BMW i4 has a range of up to 301 miles. It's 100% electric and 100% BMW. And the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, helping public radio advance journalistic excellence in the digital age, informed communities essential for healthy democracy. KnightFoundation.org. The thunderstorms that moved through last night are having an impact this morning on travel at Logan Airport. The website FlightAware reports 70 flights in and out of Logan have already been canceled today. Another 70 have been delayed. Cloudy and windy today with a high near 80 and showers and thunderstorms are possible. Tonight, a chance of more showers and thunderstorms and a low around 70. Tomorrow, mostly cloudy, a high near 81 with rain and thunderstorms likely in the afternoon. It's 70 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from BetterHelp, committed to supporting mental health through therapy. Clients are matched with one of 25,000 therapists and can communicate via video, chat, or phone at betterhelp.com slash public. From UMA, a cloud-based phone service for any size business, with an automated virtual receptionist, video meetings, and other features to connect to customers and coworkers anywhere at uma.com slash NPR. From Bank of America, Offering access to resources and digital tools designed to help local to global companies make moves for their businesses. Learn more at bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldil. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Good morning. Our friends at the History Podcast Throughline have been thinking about motherhood. The NPR podcast and radio show explores events of the past with meanings that endure today. They also hear of ideas from the past that we may repeat without knowing it. And their latest episode examines myths of motherhood. One was the idea of the welfare queen. They wrote about one woman in 1972 who briefly tried to challenge that stereotype. Rund Abdel Fattah and Rabteen Arab Louie have her story. In 1972, an article called Welfare is a Women's Issue was published in Ms. Magazine. It was written by a woman named Johnny Tillman. I'm a woman. I'm a Black woman. I'm a poor woman. I'm a fat woman. I'm a middle-aged woman. And I'm on welfare. In this country, if you're any one of those things, you count less as a human being. If you're all of those things, you don't count at all, except as a statistic. That's scholar Gwendolyn Fowler, reading the words Johnny Tillman wrote decades ago. Words that inspired her to focus her entire master's thesis on uncovering Tillman's life and work. When Johnny Tillman wrote that article, she was a mother on welfare who'd soon become the head of the National Welfare Rights Organization, a civic group fighting for welfare reform in the 1960s and 70s. But Tillman's journey began in the small town of Scott, Arkansas, where she was born in 1926. Middle of Jim Crow, 
She was a sharecropper's daughter. She also worked in the field. Eventually, she decided to move west to California. By then, she was a mother to six children. They moved into a housing project, and Tillman got a job at a laundry. But then... She gets really, really sick, and she can't work. Tillman had to consider something she dreaded, getting on welfare. She doesn't want to apply for welfare. She's heard terrible things about the experience of being on welfare in terms of, like, how caseworkers treat you. And and she's like, I don't want any parts. But they're like, you can't work. What are you going to do? So she doesn't. Tillman signs up for welfare. And right away, she starts to feel the stigma she was afraid of. One Sunday, she overhears a lady from a nearby church complaining loudly about welfare recipients. And she just talks a whole bunch of crap about people on welfare, how they're lazy and things like that. At that moment, something just clicked. She started to question why people thought she was some sort of criminal just for being on welfare. At this point, federal welfare programs had existed for a few decades, since the 1935 Social Security Act. The idea behind these programs was simple. Give cash to poor mothers with children. But historian Pramilan Addison says other ideas were part of the program's DNA. Well, the welfare system from the very outset was really centered on this idea that women, and the code word here was white women, (laughs) needed economic support from the state if there was not a man available to provide economic assistance and to support the family. The program reinforced the gender division of labor, men as breadwinners and women as mothers and homemakers. But it didn't recognize all women's work the same way. In order to qualify for these funds, families had to be considered suitable homes. And this was very racialized. It did not apply to all women which is why women of color were excluded from the welfare roles in the early years. In fact, there were always more white women on welfare than black women on welfare. But in the late 1950s and 60s, Premlin Addison says, More and more women of color started applying for and receiving welfare assistance. And along with that, we saw a deep racialization of the welfare system as well as growing stigma and social isolation of welfare recipients. Johnny Tillman saw how at every level, mothers on welfare were seen as less than. So she started organizing other mothers. In their living rooms, in their housing projects, in their kitchens, when they're waiting in line and welfare, they begin to talk to their neighbors. Groups like Tillman's were popping up across the country pushing for a few key protections. Things like better worker training so they could re-enter the workforce and affordable childcare. The movement grew into the National Welfare Rights Organization and welfare mothers began to expand their cause to include everyone. They proposed a new plan called the Guaranteed Adequate Income. And the idea caught on. And so there was widespread discussion in the 1960s and early 70s about the possibility of the federal government providing an income floor for all poor people in this this country. Johnny Tillman's dream was never realized. Historian Premalyn Addison says by the mid-1970s, another idea had come to dominate the public conversation, an idea that consolidated all of the stereotypes Tillman had been fighting against for decades into one phrase. 
the welfare queen. Racialized stereotype of a woman of color who had multiple children out of wedlock, uh, who was lazy, who was interested in living off of other people's uh, tax dollars. The myth of the welfare queen seemed to prove what a growing number of lawmakers believed, that welfare made people dependent. In the battle of ideas, the myth won out. In 1996, President Clinton dismantled the aid to families with dependent children and replaced it with a system we have today, Temporary Assistance for Needy Families, or TANF. But even though welfare was largely dismantled, Johnny helped spark a revolution of ideas that questioned who got to be a mother and challenged the very core of the nuclear family ideal that powers American capitalism. Ramtin Arablouei and Rhonda Abdel Fattah host NPR's history podcast, Throughline. You can hear the whole episode wherever you get your podcasts. This is NPR News. Today's top stories are next, then coming up at 7.45 on WBUR's Morning Edition. A new report out of Harvard shows a new immigration court in Boston that was supposed to improve the process for asylum seekers has largely failed. It's 7.29. Use the WBUR app to keep listening live wherever you go today. It lets you pause and even rewind if you miss something. Find the WBUR app in your app store today. WBUR supporters include Museum of Science. There's always something new. Visit the latest traveling exhibit, Mazes and Brain Games, and prepare to be amazed. Tickets at MOS.org. Boston Children's Hospital, thanking the community for once again helping make them one of the best children's hospitals in the nation. BostonChildrens.org slash answers. And MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink, partnering with Mass Audubon to protect climate-resilient landscapes. MathWorks.com slash MassAutobahn. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. President Biden says the U.S. had nothing to do with last week's uprising by Russian mercenaries against that country's military. Biden and NATO's Secretary General are calling the rebellion an internal matter for Moscow as Russia's invasion of Ukraine enters its 17th month. NPR's Charles Maine says Russian authorities are dropping all charges against Wagner mercenaries involved in the uprising. In a statement, Russia's Federal Security Service said it had ended the case against the Wagner Group since the mercenaries had stopped short of actions directly aimed at committing a crime. Wagner founder Yevgeny Prigozhin called off an assault by his mercenaries on Moscow late Saturday after the leader of neighboring Belarus negotiated a last-minute amnesty deal for Prigozhin and his men. In exchange, the Kremlin says Prigozhin accepted exile in Belarus and apparently the end of his mercenary force. Late Monday, President Vladimir Putin gave a televised address in which he offered Wagner mercenaries a choice, either enlist back in the Russian military, return home to their families, or leave for Belarus. Charles Maines, NPR News. Moscow. The penalty phase of Robert Bauer's trial continues today in Pennsylvania. He faces a possible death sentence after being convicted of killing 11 people at a synagogue in Pittsburgh in 2018. Yesterday, the defense told jurors Bowers has dealt with mental health issues. 
This is NPR News. This is WBUR in Boston. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Republican presidential campaign politics are causing conflict in New Hampshire. Both former President Donald Trump and Florida Governor Ron DeSantis are campaigning in the state today. WBUR's Anthony Brooks explains the problem. Trump will headline a fundraiser sponsored by the New Hampshire Federation of Republican Women in Concord. DeSantis will host a town hall just down the road in Hollis. The Republican women are criticizing DeSantis for trying to pull focus from the Trump event and are demanding that he reschedule. The DeSantis campaign dismisses the complaint, which has only deepened the rift between the two candidates. DeSantis suggests Republicans will continue to lose if they stick with Trump. There is no substitute for victory. And we have to dispense with the culture of losing that has infected the Republican Party. Polls show DeSantis running well behind Trump despite the former president's multiple legal challenges. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Anthony Brooks. The T says it's losing employees faster than it can hire new ones. A report obtained by the Boston Globe shows the T is losing 13 percent of its employees per year. Last summer, an agency that oversees the T said it would need to hire as many as 2,000 employees to be fully staffed. T officials have not said exactly how many positions still need to be filled. Work on one of the largest new affordable housing developments in Boston is now halfway done. The development in Jamaica Plain includes more than 200 affordable housing units. Lindia Downey is head of the Pine Street Inn, which has been developing this property for more than three years. So there was an extensive community process in Jamaica Plain to get approval for this building. You know, people ask me, what do you do to end homelessness? Well, what the neighbors in Jamaica Plain did is really ending homelessness for people. The development will include more than 150 apartments designated for formerly unhoused individuals. It's 733. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Serta Pro Painters, professional exterior and interior painting for your home or business. Learn more about their painting services at certapro.com. That's Serta with a C. The Red Sox are back home tonight for a quick three-game homestand against the Miami Marlins. Boston is 13 games out of first place in the AL East and three games out of a wildcard spot. There's a good chance of rain and thunderstorms today. Otherwise, it'll be cloudy with high temperatures around 80. Tonight, it falls to around 70 and more rain is possible. Tomorrow, showers in the morning and thunderstorms also possible in the afternoon. We'll have highs in the low 80s. Right now, it's 71 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from your part-time controller, specializing in nonprofit accounting. Your part-time controller helps nonprofit organizations with their accounting needs, remotely or in person. More at yourparttimecontroller.com. From Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of any size to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. More at indeed.com NPR. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Leila Faldil. The Supreme Court this week is expected to rule in a case that will decide whether affirmative action is legal in the U.S. The case involves admissions policies at Harvard and the University of North Carolina, a state where affirmative action has already been prohibited, offers a sense of how a national ban might play out. In 1996, California voters passed ballot Proposition 209, which banned race and gender as factors in state 
university admissions as well as hiring and contracting. Zachary Bleemer has studied the impact of that ballot proposition. He's an incoming assistant professor of economics at Princeton University. He spoke with A. Martinez. Now, Proposition 209 ended affirmative action admissions practices in California's public universities. How did that change the student makeup of those places? Yeah, so Berkeley and UCLA, the most selective public universities in the state, saw declines in Black and Hispanic enrollment of about 40% immediately the year after the proposition was implemented. There was no net change in Black and Hispanic enrollment at less selective California universities, Because while some Black and Hispanic students lost access to those schools because affirmative action ended, they also gained Black and Hispanic students from more selective schools like Berkeley and UCLA that those students could no longer get into. So you saw pretty big changes at the most selective universities, but no net changes in the middle. And if anything, small increases in Black and Hispanic enrollment at the least selective public universities in the state. So it sounds like California has served as a quarter of a century experiment on this. That's, I think, exactly right. You know, California only banned affirmative action at public, not private universities. But I think we can get a pretty good sense of the long-run ramifications of affirmative action bans by seeing what happened in California when that ban was implemented in 1998. Now, your research goes beyond college life at long-term economic outcomes resulting from the 96 uh, ban. What did you find? So when you compare Black and Hispanic and Native American Californians who turned 18 in 1998, one year too late for them to take advantage of the University of California's prior affirmative action policies, you see that they enroll at less selective universities because affirmative action was unavailable. And that has long run ramifications for those students. They're less likely to earn graduate degrees. Uh, Among lower testing students, they're less likely to ever earn an undergraduate degree at all. They're less likely to earn degrees in lucrative STEM fields. And if you follow them into the labor market, for the subsequent 15 or 20 years, they're earning about 5% lower wages than they would have earned if they'd had access to more selective universities under affirmative action. Black and Hispanic students saw substantially poorer long-run labor market prospects as a result of losing access to these very selective universities. But there was no commensurate gain in long-run outcomes for the white and Asian students who took their place. It seems like these very selective public universities in California just provided greater value to relatively disadvantaged Black and Hispanic students who came from lower-income neighborhoods, had poorer job networks, relatively less access to otherwise successful peers, and who were thus able to better take advantage of the resources provided by these super-selective universities than the white and Asian students who took their places. Zach Blamer is an incoming assistant professor of economics at Princeton University. Thanks uh, very much. You bet. We have a bit of history now from war-torn Ukraine, specifically the Zaporizhia region in southern Ukraine. It's an active front line. Centuries ago, the 16th century, it was run by warriors beating back invaders, including the Russian czars. And though those warriors are now revered, They made a compromise that Ukrainians vow never to repeat. NPR's Joanna Kakissis sent us this postcard. Hortitsa is a lush, wild island where horses run free. It's on the Dnipro River, just outside the southern city of Zaporizhia. Inside a thatched hut near an animal refuge, 
I meet Yuri Kopyshinsky, a tall grandfather with a shaved head and a linebacker's build. He calls Portitsa home. It was once the headquarters of his ancestors, the Zaporizhian Cossacks. We, the Zaporizhian Cossacks, defended the people who lived in this particular area. And you have to think of like the history of the Cossacks who were de facto border guards. He says they defended their land against invaders, including Muscovite princes, and they took a blood oath before battle. So you have to understand that when you fight as brothers, you fight in a completely different way. Kopyshinsky takes us to the edge of the island, to a fenced-in complex overlooking the river. For the last 20 years, he has trained locals and foreigners here to fight like the Zaporizhian Cossacks. One of his best students is Andriy Lazavi, a cheery hulk with a drooping mustache and long osaletets, a traditional Cossack ponytail on top of his mostly shaved head. It's a hairstyle I've seen all over Ukraine, even on women. Lazavi calls it the haircut of champions. Every adult, every child wants a hairstyle like that, so we can look like our heroes. Lazavi opens the gate to take us inside the fenced-in complex, which is lined with old wooden houses that look like they came out of a Renaissance fair. This is the reconstruction of a Kozak siege, or a military administrative center. There's a church, some homes, a museum. Lozavi disappears into the museum and returns with weapons. Just, just step aside, please. The sound of that whoosh, whoosh, whoosh is Andriy swinging a big, heavy sword around. Now he's got two in his hand. He's also got a couple of axes, and he can fight on horseback. Whether we use horses and swords or howitzers and HIMARS, it all goes back to the same Cossack spirit to defend our land. Lozavi says he's been rejected for military service because of multiple bone fractures he suffered falling off horses. Kopashinsky's other student warriors are all on the front line, and they're fighting other Cossacks who live in Russia and support Moscow. The Russian Cossacks were nothing but servants, and all they did was ever submit to the Tsar. The Zaporizhian Cossacks never submitted to anybody. Except this one time, he says, and it was a terrible mistake. More than 450 years ago, the Zaporizhian Cossacks signed a treaty with Moscow for military protection. The Russian Empire grew, and Cossacks in other regions pledged their loyalty to the Tsars. The Zaporizhian Cossacks held out until Catherine the Great, one of the Russian Empire's most formidable leaders, disbanded them in 1775. But today, Kashinsky says, the Russians are weak. And the Zaporizhian Cossacks, he says, are fighting again. Joanna Kagesis, NPR News, Hortitsa, Ukraine. This is NPR News. It's a Tuesday on WBUR. Coming up at 810, the Marine Corps recently decommissioned its all-women training battalion in an effort to end gender segregation. Now all recruits will train together regardless of gender. 
Cloudy and windy today with showers and thunderstorms possible. We'll have temperatures around 80. Tonight it drops to the upper 60s and there's a chance of more rain. Tomorrow, another cloudy, windy day with rain and storms possible. It'll be in the low 80s. Right now it's 72 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Babson College. The Babson MBA helps you become a professional who takes action, leads with confidence, and tackles complex global challenges. Acquire the highly sought-after entrepreneurial mindset with a Babson MBA, ranked number one in entrepreneurship by U.S. News & World Report. Visit babson.edu MBA. Businesses in Boston expect to feel the impact of the closure of the Sumner Tunnel. The highway between East Boston and downtown will be closed for nearly all of July and August. Bobby Eustace is the owner of Polcari's in the North End. He expects to see less foot traffic, which means he'll have to ship more orders out to customers. It's going to be a challenge for two months, especially, you know, with uh, our clientele from uh, hometown of mine, originally Revere, um, Saugus, East Boston. You know, we have uh, quite a little following that comes in. So I'm sure it's going to be challenging for them. The MBTA will offer free blue line rides and reduced fares on the commuter rail and ferries during the closure. Massachusetts is getting nearly $150 million to expand high-speed Internet access in the state. The federal funding is part of a $42 billion effort by the Biden administration. It aims to expand broadband Internet across the country. The Massachusetts Broadband Institute says it's developing a five-year plan to use the money. It's 745. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from The Nature Conservancy, partnering with communities across the globe to find solutions to the climate and biodiversity crises, committed to building a future where people and nature can thrive. Nature.org solutions. And from Easy Cater, committed to helping companies find food for meetings and team lunches with catering menus from restaurants nationwide, online ordering, and 24-7 live support. EasyCater.com. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Next month marks two years since the Biden administration announced it would open a new kind of immigration court in Boston. It was supposed to speed up the process and make it fairer for people seeking asylum. A newly released report from the Harvard Law School Immigration Clinic is the first review of how well the new court is working, and the results aren't good. The report's lead author, Tiffany Liu, joins me now to talk about that. Good morning, Tiffany. Hi, Aruba. Thank you so much for having me here. Your findings are very detailed, but can you summarize the most important points for us? In short, what we found is that asylum seekers who have been assigned to the dedicated docket in Boston are less likely to obtain asylum. And these disproportionately negative outcomes are in large part because asylum seekers on the dedicated docket are less likely to have legal representation. And for those who are ordered removed, many are removed without even having their day in court. How many people do you think have been deported because of these issues that you've identified? And do we know which migrant groups have been the most affected? Based on our study up until August of 2022, what we found is that over 1,600 people have been ordered removed um, on the Boston dedicated docket. That's 34% of the completed cases. By contrast, only 4% of people who have been assigned to the dedicated docket here in Boston have been granted asylum. Uh, When we talk about 
the communities who have been impacted, there's a large proportion of people from Brazil. Over 74% of the dedicated docket are people from Brazil, and over 40% of people and asylum seekers are children. This fast-track court in Boston is one of 11 nationwide, and it's the biggest. And the Biden administration said when it was chosen that Boston was chosen, in part because it has plenty of legal aid providers. So were migrants here generally able to get local legal aid? The frank reality is that there simply are not enough resources to go around. When immigrants appear in immigration court, Judges provide them a list of pro bono, meaning free legal service providers. And in our research, what we found is that the vast majority of them are at capacity and are unable to take on new cases. The unpredictability that the dedicated docket imposes, um, you know, makes it even more difficult for these legal service providers to provide representation. And to take a step back, uh, asylum seekers in the U.S. have a right by law to have immigration representation, but at their own expense. What that means in practice is that asylum seekers either have to be the lucky few who are able to obtain pro bono representation from these legal service providers who are under-resourced or have the means to obtain private representation. What was the result of not having legal representation? There were few, very few, but every single person who was granted asylum on the dedicated docket here in Boston, had legal representation. And of those who were ordered removed, over 60% of them were unrepresented. How have officials responded to your findings? We have not yet received official response to our report directly. We are hopeful that some change will be made, but advocacy is needed on this front. Are there other recommendations that you're making to improve the process for migrants? Absolutely. I mean, I think first and foremost, the Biden administration should terminate the dedicated docket and impose safeguards and ensure safeguards to protect the rights of asylum seekers. This would start by terminating the dedicated docket because it simply is not possible to have these expedited proceedings while also safeguarding access to justice and counsel for individuals. Tiffany Liu is a fellow at the Harvard Immigration and Refugee Clinical Program. Thank you so much for breaking this down for us. Thank you so much for having me. You're with WBOR. Coming up at 8.20, an update on the situation in Kosovo, where NATO officials say they're ready to respond if peace is threatened by new acts of violence like those that injured peacekeeping soldiers in late May. It's 7.50. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by The Huntington, presenting the first American production of the Lehman Trilogy, winner of the 2022 Tony Award for Best Play. This marvel of theatrical storytelling is an intimate saga about a family and a monumental expose of unbridled capitalism. Now through July 16th at the Huntington Theater, HuntingtonTheater.org. TikTok is now a driving force in the music industry. They find a song, or they know the song already, and they love it, and they're so passionate about it, and they say, I want to create something to this song. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. We'll have a conversation with the man who might be the most influential person in pop music today, TikTok's global head of music. That's On Point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. 
Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Tuesday morning. Russia has dropped charges against the leader behind an attempted mutiny in the country over the weekend. The CDC says several malaria cases in Texas and Florida are the first to spread in the U.S. in 20 years. And the attacker who killed five people at a queer nightclub in Colorado Springs last year will spend life in prison. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR mobile app. WBUR supporters include Innuendo, providing shading systems for businesses and homes. Their design team can help you find window treatments for light, heat, privacy, and glare issues. Innuendo Natick and Innuendo.com. Cloudy with gusty winds today, near 80. Right now, it's 73 degrees in Boston. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Leila Faldil. Since its creation, senior-level government jobs at the State Department have mostly gone to white men. And the Biden administration has been trying to change that. It tapped retired Ambassador Gina Abercrombie Winstanley to help the State Department shed its pale male and Yale image. More than two years later, the department's first chief diversity officer is getting ready to step down. I can't say that the numbers definitively have changed. What I can say is that our culture has begun to change. And that's what lifts my spirits as I walk out of the door. She set in place a five-year plan aimed at increasing equity and diversity. But the State Department is still mostly white men. If you really look and see where are demographic groups in the organization, then you get closer to that 80% European-American. And so you could look at it and see, well, where are African-Americans? Where are Latino-Latina? Where are Asian-Americans? Where are people with disabilities? The import of that is not to divide us, but to unite us, to ensure that the playing field is indeed level. It's about looking at the actual numbers and then going from there. Were there no official numbers before? There are a lot of things we simply did not ask. Okay. Um, Much easier to say we don't know than it doesn't look great. So it took some effort, you know, to negotiate and get everyone within the organization that touches this space comfortable with us really taking hard, clear, unvarnished look at the numbers. I, several years ago, went to a talk with another chief diversity officer who reminded us all that when you put in, as many professions do, you want a college degree, Mm -hmm. you've cut out 65% of the American population immediately, Mm -hmm. immediately. And we don't do that in the government, of course, but it's that sort of thing that we have to take a close look at. Are we putting barriers in place that won't bring us better candidates? So... But just to be clear, you're not saying we shouldn't have a college degree to go into the State Department. You don't need a college degree to become a Foreign Service officer. That's never been a requirement. Interesting. Never been a requirement. I just assumed it was. Uh, People do. (laughs) So we have to make that clear. So I go and talk to community colleges. I talk to high schoolers to let them know knowledge is not the same as education. Or education doesn't have to be formal. You're a Black woman who served in the Foreign Service for 30 years, if you could talk about your own experience and how that informs the way you approach this. Mm. I can't imagine that there is an African-American woman in our organization that hasn't had a similar experience now or 
before of our colleagues underestimating our abilities. You know, when I came in, people expected me to get coffee or that I was the support staff. Even I have been discriminated against. I've dealt with sexual assault, all of it. I mean, it is part of what one deals with, I think, in the workforce in general, and certainly in this building, which is very male-dominated and very conservative. And, you know, a lot of it is being overlooked. You know, I walk in as a Black woman and people don't expect me to be the leader. I have to spend time establishing my bona fides. I have to spend time making sure they understand, no, I'm not bringing coffee. No, I'm not an assistant. Nothing wrong with either thing, but that's not what I do. You spoke at the House Committee on Foreign Affairs. Um, You were discussing funding. But a lot of that testimony was dominated, especially when you were being questioned by Republican members of the committee, including the chairman, by questions about whether your mandate is to divide the nation, whether this is a form of reverse racism. I just want to know what you were thinking as you were hearing these questions about the work that you're doing. I believed that we could have done a better job of serving the American people if there had been space for a genuine discussion of the issues. One of the most important things we've done since I've been here is bring greater transparency to senior assignments that uh, until August of last year, you had to be known by someone to be a deputy assistant secretary in this building. And my office led the change for that. Now, while the change is going to benefit women and minorities because we're the least likely ones to have got that tap on the shoulder, I'm delighted to tell you that the first person to benefit was a European-American male. Mm. And he came up to me and he was kind of apologetic because he said, I don't know if I'm your demographic, but I want to say thank you. And he said, "I, I saw the advertisement. These positions had never been advertised before. Really, you had to know someone. And I said, yay you, you are my demographic. Inclusion is for everyone. And what everyone needs to understand is that we are not trying to put a new group at the top of the pyramid. We are trying to level the playing field. Do you worry that much of the work can be reversed in a climate like the one we're living through right now? I don't worry much about it at all. Again, I don't think the workforce wants to go back to the smoke-filled room. Nobody wants to go back to that, number one. Number two, certainly for the precept, that's negotiated with the union. So regardless of the next administration, that's not going away. Now, what people do with it. I would tell you one last story, and, and we put in place last October, my shorthand is, it's, you know, non-discriminatory, blah, 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 policy. We got your back is what I call it. So if something happens to you at a border as a woman, you know, they pull you into secondary and they start harassing you and won't let you go through. Or if you are gay and they start making comments and question you and not letting you go through. Or if you're driving down a road in a country and you're black and you get pulled over and stopped at a checkpoint, all of these things happen the embassy or the consulate will now not tell you to suck it up. This is part of life abroad. And, you know, are you sure you didn't do something? They will go and speak for you 
the host nation. Changes are being made. I don't think people want to give that up. Thank you so much, Ambassador, for your time. My pleasure, my privilege. Thank you. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldin. And I'm Stephen Skip. WBUR supporters include members of the Massachusetts Energy Marketers Association, committed to reducing carbon emissions with clean, renewable bioheat fuel, mybioheat.com. And BMW. The BMW i4 has a range of up to 301 miles. It's 100% electric and 100% BMW. I'm All Things Considered host Lisa Mullins, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Russian authorities have dropped charges against the mercenary chief who led a briefed armed rebellion there just days ago. It's Tuesday, June 27th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, President Biden says the U.S. had nothing to do with the power struggle in Russia. We were not involved. We had nothing to do with it. This was part of a struggle within the Russian system. Plus, Native American tribes are trying to block what would be the nation's largest lithium mine. And this hour, Massachusetts students and educators reflect on a year without masks, COVID tests, or social distancing. This year just feels like there's this weight off of your shoulders. Kids have been able to get more into a routine of what it is to be at school. Rain and storms today near 80. It's 8.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Korva Coleman. Russian President Vladimir Putin is reestablishing control over his country. He gave a speech late last night. This follows a short-lived rebellion by the mercenary Wagner Group. That lasted a day and ended when Wagner founder Yevgeny Prigozhin agreed to go into exile in neighboring Belarus. NPR's Charles Maine says it's not quite clear if Prigozhin is there yet. Belarusian media today reported that a plane believed to be used by Prigozhin uh, landed in Minsk, the capital of Belarus, this morning. Uh, also, Russia's Federal Security Services, the FSB, announced this morning they dropped this insurrection charge against Prigozhin and the rest of the Wagner fighters. Uh, the question now seems to be whether Prigozhin will keep his end of whatever bargain he made with Putin. NPR's Charles Maines reporting. Forecasters are warning of dangerous heat in many southern states today, from Arizona to Florida. The National Weather Service has issued excessive heat watches from southern Illinois to parts of Alabama. Heat indices could reach 115 degrees. South Carolina Supreme Court will hear a challenge of the state's six-week abortion ban today. This will be the second time a law severely restricting the procedure comes before the court. South Carolina Public Radio's Mayan Schechter has more. Lawyers for GOP leaders will be back at the state's high court to defend the latest effort by legislators to impose strict limits on abortion. The question before the five justices, is the law passed this year substantially different from a six-week ban passed in 2021 that the state Supreme Court ruled unconstitutional in January? In May, South Carolina's two abortion providers sued the state after Governor Henry McMaster signed a law prohibiting abortions with limited exceptions once cardiac activity is detected 
typically around six weeks of pregnancy. GOP leaders believe the new ban fixes concerns raised in the court's January opinion. For NPR News, I'm Mayan Schechter in Columbia. Prosecutors in Idaho will seek the death penalty for Brian Koberger. For Northwest Public Broadcasting, Lauren Patterson reports Koberger is the suspect in the killings of four University of Idaho students. New documents filed by the Lehigh County Prosecutor's Office say the circumstances of the murders meet multiple Idaho codes for pursuing the death penalty for Koberger. Reasons listed include multiple murders, a, quote, disregard for human life, and that the crime was especially heinous and cruel. All of the victims were stabbed to death. The victims in the case were Kaylee Gonsalves, Madison Mogan, Ethan Chapin, and Zana Kernodal. At the time of his arrest in December, 28-year-old Koberger was a graduate student at neighboring Washington State University studying criminology. For NPR News, I'm Lauren Patterson in Moscow, Idaho. You're listening to NPR News. This is WBUR in Boston. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Admissions staff at colleges across Massachusetts are waiting on a big decision from the Supreme Court. It's considering whether the use of race in admissions is legal. WBUR's Max Larkin reports that may expect that many expect the court to restrict the practice, which would affect growing diversity on many campuses. In 2010, Massachusetts' 10 most selective campuses were 45 percent white. But in the years since, that's dropped to 36 percent as multiracial Asian and Hispanic students won thousands more seats. Wellesley College Dean of Admissions Peaches Valdez says a high court ban could undo that progress. It will change the landscape of higher education. It's going to change the work that we do. It will change who we bring to the campus. And it's going to change the conversations that students are having. Wellesley was one of nine Bay State institutions to submit briefs to the court, arguing for diversity's academic and cultural value. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Max Larkin. A Newton man is under arrest in connection to the murder of a couple celebrating their 50th wedding anniversary over the weekend. A woman in her 90s was also killed with them Sunday in the Nonantum area. Police took 41-year-old Christopher Ferguson into custody last night. Middlesex District Attorney Marion Ryan says this was a random attack. It is always good to be vigilant. Newton is a very safe city. That doesn't mean that you shouldn't be vigilant. Um, in particularly in time of the year when people have doors and windows open and air conditioners are going, you should always have a level of vigilance. Ferguson is due in court today on murder and assault charges. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu is preparing to welcome the NAACP National Convention to the city. The association's national board is in town today to preview their annual gathering. It begins July 26th. Mayor Wu told WBUR's Radio Boston that the convention is an opportunity for the city to spotlight its progress on racial equity. We want to make sure that the convention sees not only what is there and and the work that we're doing, representing work across the city, but also gets into our neighborhoods as well and can celebrate the rich culture and history and leadership of the black community in neighborhoods throughout the city. The NAACP's 2021 National Convention was supposed to happen in Boston. It was moved online because of the pandemic.
Today is the deadline set by the National Park Service for a 94-year-old painter to vacate his shack in the dunes of Provincetown. Sal Deldeo has lived in one of the shacks on the dunes for 77 years. The original owner left it to him when she died. The Park Service owns the land and doesn't recognize the transfer. The agency tells the Boston Globe it's standing firm on its eviction request, despite pleas from federal lawmakers and neighbors on Deldeo behalf. It's 8.07. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by BU's Metropolitan College, offering graduate degrees, providing competitive skills in the field of marketing. Find on-campus master's programs in areas such as advertising and innovation and technology, along with online degrees in health communication and global marketing management. For more information, visit bu.edu met. The Red Sox are back in action tonight after a day off yesterday. They'll take on the Miami Marlins tonight at Fenway. Cloudy and near 80 today. We could see showers or storms this afternoon. Mostly cloudy tonight with more showers possible. Temperatures will drop into the 60s. Cloudy with showers and storms again tomorrow in the lower 80s. Right now it's 72 degrees in Boston. Thanks for starting your day with WBUR. WBUR supporters include Fisher Investments. Fisher Investments' team of specialists offer guidance on investing, retirement income, and Social Security. FisherInvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. Good morning. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Leila Fadel. We're going to hear about the end of an era in the Marine Corps. After training nearly every woman recruit to join the Marines, the almost entirely women-run 4th Battalion is no more. And coming up, we will tell you why. But first, we turn to the armed mutiny in Russia over the weekend. President Biden said nothing in public as the events unfolded. And when he finally broke his silence on Monday, he made it very clear that neither the United States nor its allies had any involvement. We had to make sure we gave Putin no excuse. Let me emphasize, we gave Putin no excuse to blame this on the West or to blame this on NATO. So that's Biden explaining the silence. NPR's White House correspondent Franco Ordonez was listening and he's here with us now. Hi, Franco. Hi, Layla. So what did you learn? Well, I mean, yesterday Biden gave a little more insight to all that he was doing at Camp David during all this action was happening. You know, he was said he was getting hour by hour updates from his national security team and that he directed them to prepare for a range of scenarios. He didn't go into details, though. Mm-hmm. And he also said that it's too early to draw any conclusions about the lasting impacts but that his team continues to assess the fallout. And as you noted at the top, the key message he wanted to deliver, and he wanted to deliver it to cameras, was that the United States had nothing to do with Russia's troubles, and that this was an internal struggle with the Russian system. So explain that. Why was that so key to make sure the U.S. wasn't perceived to have been involved? Well, a little of it might have had to do with knocking down this Russian state media account alluding to an investigation of Western involvement. But what this really seems to be about is wanting to kind of stay out of a very fraught situation. I spoke to Andrea Kendall-Taylor, who advised the Biden transition team on Russian policy. You know, she says Biden was making it clear to Putin that the administration was not going to try to explain exploit this incident for its gain. There is a long-held belief, not just for Putin, but really of the security services in Russia, that the United States will seek to use instability to try to break up the Russian state and to keep Russia down. 
And with so much tension, you know, the biggest fear is a misunderstanding, the kind of misunderstanding that could spiral out of control. And there is another audience here, and that's the rest of the world. Mm. Kendall Taylor says the White House is trying to counter that narrative that the U.S. likes to meddle in the domestic affairs of other countries. And that's something that Russia and China like to promote. But did the administration say anything about what this has done to Putin's grip on power? Well, John Kirby, a spokesman for the National Security Council, said yesterday that it does show Russia's military is not as vaunted as the Kremlin likes to make it out to be. Mm. But he also cautioned that, you know, those who are trying to predict Putin's demise, he noted that Putin still commands a very large and capable military and tens of thousands of Russian troops are still fighting in Ukraine and fighting very vigorously. Yeah, I mean, and also, just to remind people, this private mercenary group that marched towards Moscow is key in the fighting in Ukraine for Russia. Did the White House say anything about what this means for Ukraine and also for Russia's stability? Well, the White House says it's too soon to really say how this will all play out. But it will be clearly an important item discussed at next month's NATO summit. And it also raises some concerns about instability in Russia, a lot of concerns, which is always a big deal when dealing with a nuclear power. It'll also point out that the White House says it remains committed to Ukraine and that there will be another financial package for Ukraine announced later this week. NPR's White House correspondent Franco Ordonez. Thank you so much. Thanks, Layla. The U.S. Marines have decommissioned the recruit training battalion that for decades was the only one open to women. It's part of an effort to end gender segregation. WHRO's Steve Walsh reports. Women, Marines, and veterans packed a field house at Paris Island, South Carolina to watch the decommissioning of the historic 4th Battalion. Sergeant Major Christine Henning says she'll miss the one entity run almost entirely by women. That female legacy of only training in one company, training in one battalion, is no more. There is no more women-only entity in the Marine Corps. Under one name or another, the unit trained nearly every woman recruit to join the Marines since they were allowed to join in the 1940s. The Marines opted to shrink the number of battalions at Paris Island after women finally began training on the West Coast in 2021. After lightning was spotted, a platoon of women recruits train inside their barracks. Normally, recruits would be outside among platoons of men. Men and women were kept largely separated until 2019. The lack of contact shows up in their attitude, says Sidra Montgomery. She led a two-year study commissioned by the Marines looking at how to end gender segregation. We measured recruits, you know, sexist beliefs and attitudes, and we found that male Marine Corps recruits have higher sexist attitudes than their female Marine Corps recruits and also than their other male service recruit counterparts. The other services integrated boot camp in the 1990s. Marine drill instructors train around the clock, even in the shower, saying it's part of what makes a Marine. The vast majority of platoons are men only. The independent study recommended having at least one woman drill instructor, says Montgomery. 
you know, the drill instructor is so important in the training process. They are the apex role model of what it means to be a Marine. I think it's critically important to establishing a culture that signals that men and women are to be equally respected authority figures. Open your eyes. Okay. One problem is there aren't enough women recruits or drill instructors. Women make up roughly 9% of the Marine Corps, the lowest percentage of any service. Gunnery Sergeant Kylie Gregork was urged to report to Paris Island. Working as an instructor at the pool, she says she was initially reluctant, but the role has grown on her. I love Marines. I love mentoring them because you're kind of like that mom. You know, they look up to you for everything. It's frustrating at times, but so is being a parent. Lieutenant Colonel Aixa Donez joined the Marines before all combat roles were open to women throughout the military in 2015. At the time, over the specific objection of the Marine Corps. Once I was in the Marine Corps, I fell in love with the institution. Donez ran Marine recruiting in L.A. before taking over as the last commander of 4th Battalion at Paris Island. The Marines have targeted having 10% of its force be women since 2017, but progress has been slow. We don't have a medical service within the Marine Corps. And a large number of the female populations for the Navy, the Air Force, and the Army, they go into the medical field. A group of three women who graduated from boot camp in the 1970s came back to Paris Island for the ceremony. After being brought in to fill desk jobs, each of them eventually earned master's degree, says Terry Metlack. We were recruited as free a man to fight. The Marine Corps wanted a few good men, and that's the way we were actually recruited. There was not really an, such an active recruitment for our females at our time, but it was just determination. It's always been difficult, she adds, for women to gain a foothold in the Marines. For NPR News, I'm Steve Walsh at Paris Island, South Carolina. You may think of meteorologists as people who just give you the weather forecast on TV, but apparently it can be a dangerous job if you're a meteorologist like one in Iowa who linked weather events to climate change and then came threats. NPR's Rachel Treisman reports. Scientists are making the connection between climate change and extreme weather clearer than ever. And longtime meteorologist Chris Gloninger says it's on the journalists who cover weather to explain that to people, especially when storms and wildfires are breaking records. I truly believe it is the existential crisis of our lifetime, and that's why I think it's so important to do it. Most Americans accept climate change as fact, surveys show, and Gloninger says many meteorologists do talk about it. He's gotten a lot of viewer support for doing so during his many years broadcasting in New England and the Midwest. But he's also gotten pushback. He revealed last summer that he'd received a death threat and a string of disturbing emails, like one urging him to go drown in a melting ice cap. An Iowa man has since been charged with harassment. Those threats left Gloninger shaken. That, combined with caring for aging parents, pushed him to make a change. It's just like, here's so many punches he can take. Let's just try to hit a reset button. I have plans on finding a more hands-on approach to tackling the climate crisis anyway. So I think that that just sped up the timeline. And so, after 18 years, he's leaving the business to start a new job with an environmental consulting group. Gloninger says he's excited to use his unique skills in science and communications to help people deal with climate change. It's not unlike what he's been doing. I'm not giving up. I'm just switching roles to do even more of it. There are a couple things Gloninger wants people to take away from his story. For one, he wants journalists to know their reporting on climate change is more important than ever. As for everyone else, he says, 
compassion goes a long way. Climate change isn't an opinion. It's fact-based science. But at the same point, if your ideas differ from somebody else's, just be kind. Don't go on the offensive and attack. You don't have to quit your day job, he says, to make the world a better place. Rachel Treisman, NPR News. Coming up this afternoon on All Things Considered, a profile of Maryland Congressman Jamie Raskin. The Democratic lawmaker who made a name for himself during Trump's second impeachment trial is at a crossroads. After news that his cancer is in remission, he's now weighing his political future. Seek re-election in the House or run for the Senate? Listen by asking your smart speaker to play NPR or your local member station by name. This is NPR News. Good morning. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Thanks for starting your Tuesday with WBUR. Coming up in 15 minutes on Morning Edition, Native Americans in Nevada are trying to stop construction of a large lithium mine on land they consider sacred. The tribes will be in federal court today in a last-ditch effort to halt the project. It's 820. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Metro West Subaru where same-day and next-day service appointments are available. Service until 9 on Route 9 in Natick. And Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com. TikTok is now a driving force in the music industry. They find a song, or they know the song already, and they love it, and they're so passionate about it, and they say, I want to create something to this song. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. We'll have a conversation with the man who might be the most influential person in pop music today, TikTok's global head of music. That's On Point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Cloudy and windy today with a high near 80 and showers and thunderstorms possible. Tonight, a chance of more showers and thunderstorms and a low around 70. Tomorrow, mostly cloudy, a high near 81 with rain and thunderstorms likely in the afternoon. Right now, it's 72 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Hint, maker of fruit-infused water with no sugar or diet sweeteners. Available in more than 25 flavors, including watermelon and pineapple in stores or delivered from hintwater.com. From the Pew Charitable Trusts, sharing how communities are restoring trust and solving problems on the After the Fact podcast, available at pewtrusts.org slash after the fact. From Workday, committed to helping organizations adapt to change, using real-time data to uncover insights, stay decision-ready, and prepare for whatever's next the finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldil. And I'm Steve Inskeep. The United States has spent decades trying to keep the peace in Kosovo, in Europe, and the stakes are high because that peace is being threatened now. 
for a young European democracy that declared its independence from Serbia in 2008. NPR's Eleanor Beardsley recently visited and sends this report. At the end of May, four newly elected mayors, all ethnic Albanians, entered the town halls in their districts in northern Kosovo, which is populated mostly by ethnic Serbs and is contiguous with Serbia. The mayors were soon met by chanting crowds. There were clashes. More than 30 NATO soldiers were injured trying to keep the peace. School teacher Maria Stefanovic was in front of the municipality building in her town of Svechan. I mean, it's a small place, and then whenever something happens, you just hear it, word of mouth, and then you just go out into the street. Stefanovic, an ethnic Serb, says the reason they protested is because they didn't vote in this election. They boycotted it on orders from Belgrade after a dispute over license plates. Many Serbs still have Serbian plates on their cars, and Kosovo's government began fining them for it. Stefanovic says Serbs feel unfairly targeted by the government in Pristina, and being forced to accept these mayors elected by a tiny sliver of ethnic Albanians was a step too far. This was quite a shock for all of us. Vecan has been always ethnically clean. I mean, uh, Serbs mostly live here. We would never vote for an Albanian, especially not in, not in any Serbian community, especially not here. 24 years after NATO intervened to stop the persecution of ethnic Albanians by the forces of Serbian strongman Slobodan Milosevic, they're still needed to keep the peace in this corner of the former Yugoslavia. Serbia, which considers Kosovo the birthplace of its religion and culture, does not recognize Kosovo's independence. Here we have two truths. We have Serbian truth and Albanian truth. Simple as that. Serjan Simonovic is a political analyst with Kosovo's civil society organization, the Human Center. They claim that Kosovo is Albanian's country, and that is their truth. We claim that Kosovo is Serbian country, it's our truth. And we both have some solid evidences to back it up. Simonovic says the Serbs here feel loyal to Serbia, but they've also been participating in Kosovo's institutions for the last 10 years, and things have mostly been working. Still, he says Kosovo Serbs feel like pawns in a bigger game. Should they belong to Kosovo or should they belong to Serbia? At the end, these citizens, I mean Serbs in Kosovo, they're deceived from both sides. Since 2013, Serbs have been members of Kosovo's parliament and judiciary. They've served in the multi-ethnic Kosovo police force. But in November of last year, due to disagreements between Pristina and Belgrade on a number of issues, Serbs pulled out of Kosovo institutions entirely. This has left a vacuum that's hurting the local population, says Igor Markovic, who works for an organization helping the Serb minority in Kosovo. The situation around the normalization process between Kosovo and Serbia is, from their perspective, high politics. Which means neither Belgrade nor Pristina bother to consult the local Serb community, he says. For example, from Belgrade's perspective, they usually say, yes, we are fighting for the rights of the Kosovo Serbs, but they are not actually doing anything. And Kosovo's government, says Markovic, is playing the ethno-nationalist card to shore up support among majority ethnic Albanians. A particularly harmful move, he says, was Prime Minister Albin Kurti's sending of special armed police units to the north last summer to fight what Kurti calls rampant organized crime there. 
you have this very popular discourse on the side of the current prime minister that North Kosovo is basically a wild, wild west, where you have, you know, criminals running around. If you're an ordinary citizen, this is something that doesn't make you feel comfortable at the end of the day. They ask themselves, why are those special units present in northern Kosovo and not in other parts of Kosovo? Because the illegal smuggling is present everywhere in the Balkans. Markovic says those special police units helped usher in the new mayors. In Kosovo's capital of Pristina, the cafes are full of young people who support Kurti. Many feel their country's progress is being blocked by the small Serb minority. 22-year-old graphic designer Murat Husseini says it's good that the prime minister installed the new mayors in the north. It's legal. It's right. Because most of the people there, they chose themselves not to vote. So we're not really to blame for the people that voted. It's democracy, you know? And they did that because of the pressure from Serbia. Yugoslavia broke apart in the 1990s in a paroxysm of inter-ethnic violence. So the world is watching how Kosovo treats its ethnic Serb minority. The U.S. and E.U. have taken an unusually tough line with Kosovo's government. Secretary of State Antony Blinken condemned Kurti's use of force in installing the new mayors and urged him to refocus on inter-ethnic dialogue. Visar Imeri is a former member of Kurti's political party, but now a critic. The measures and the decisions that have been taken by the government since last year has made the situation worse on the ground in terms of the Serb community integrated into Kosovo's institutions and in terms of interethnic relations. In an interview with NPR, Kosovo Prime Minister Albin Kurti says they're trying to work together and accommodate Kosovo Serbs. He lays the blame on Serbia. The key problem we have is these violent extremists and criminal gangs financially supported and politically ordered from Belgrade to destabilize Kosovo. Kurti says he's open to new mayoral elections. Because I acknowledge that these mayors that we have in the north, they are legal, but they lack proper political legitimacy. But he says those elections can only take place once the criminal gangs have been dealt with. A month after the violence over the mayors, residents of Svechan are still gathering outside their town hall, holding an around-the-clock peaceful sit-in until the mayor leaves. Serbs here agree holding new elections could solve the problem. Natasha Pantic says she's open to voting in a new election if, she says, it's what Belgrade tells us to do. Eleanor Beersley, NPR News, in northern Kosovo. This is NPR News. Today's top stories are next and coming up in about 15 minutes on WBWAR's Morning Edition. Massachusetts K-12 through students and educators just wrapped up their first post-COVID school year. They'll share what it was like to adjust back to what was once normal. It's 829. Use the WBOR app to keep listening live wherever you go today. It lets you pause and even rewind if you miss something. Find the WBOR app in your app store today. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MIFA, the Massachusetts Educational Financing Authority, providing resources and tools to help you navigate the college planning process, including customized plans of savings, loans, and guidance with webinars, calculators, and an informative podcast. More information at MEFA.org. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. 
President Biden says it's too early to reach a definitive conclusion on what last week's uprising by Russian mercenaries will mean for Moscow amid its ongoing invasion of Ukraine. The war is entering its 17th month. Biden told reporters yesterday the U.S. had nothing to do with the rebellion, which lasted less than 24 hours. Democratic Congresswoman Alyssa Slotkin of Michigan is a former CIA intelligence officer. The whole episode to me is the greatest signal we have of Putin's folly in trying to invade the entirety of Ukraine. I mean, a year and a half after he goes in, um, you know, you have Russians fighting Russians on Russian soil. Slotkin was speaking to NPR's Morning Edition. Crews in Montana are still working to remove more than a half dozen rail cars from the Yellowstone River. They ended up in the water when a train bridge gave way over the weekend about 40 miles west of Billings. Some of the rail cars contained hot asphalt, others contained molten sulfur. Montana Rail Link President Joe Rasco says a specialized dive team has been brought to the site. They're going to help us not only assess what's in the river, but also help us uh, secure the cars for uh, removal from the river. Montana's Department of Environmental Quality says preliminary tests show there's been no threat to public drinking water. This is NPR News from Washington. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. A Massachusetts lawmaker wants to reform the state's gun laws to cut down on gun violence. State Representative Democrat Michael Day says his proposal would help get rid of so-called ghost guns. It would also expand the state's red flag law. In addition to other measures, the bill would require anyone who wants a gun license to undergo training and take a written test. Day says the timeline for the bill's future is unclear. A Biden administration plan to speed up asylum cases for migrant families is not working as planned. That's according to a new report from the Harvard Immigration and Refugee Clinical Program. WBUR's Dan Guzman reports. Eleven fast-track programs called Dedicated Dockets were set up nationwide two years ago, with Boston's being the largest. The Harvard report finds most of the people allowed to stay in the country were helped out by legal assistance. But the number of cases is overwhelming the legal groups here that provide those services. Tiffany Liu is the report's lead author. While these legal service providers are working around the clock, the vast majority of them don't have the capacity to provide the representation needed for all of the people that the Biden administration has assigned to a dedicated docket. The report recommends doing away with the fast track program and giving asylum seekers better access to legal help. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Dan Guzman. Just in time for our summer-like weather this week, the Frog Pond on Boston Common opens today. Liz Sullivan is with the City Parks and Recreation Department. She says the spray park is vital with the heat and humidity. We are adding water features most of the time when we are renovating a new park, and we are turning on the water features earlier in the year. Heat resiliency is really an important thing to think about when we're designing public infrastructure. The Frog Pond is one of nearly 80 public water parks in the city. It'll be open daily through Labor Day. It's 8.33. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum. Immerse yourself in the creations of eight international artists working with living plants. Then visit Isabella's blooming courtyard, gardnermuseum.org. The Red Sox are back at Fenway tonight to play the Miami Marlins. 
The Bruins' season didn't end the way fans wanted, but the team picked up plenty of season-end awards last night. Patrice Bergeron won his sixth Selkie Trophy for Best Defensive Player, Linus Ulmark won the Vezina Trophy for Best Goaltender, and Jim Montgomery captured the Jack Adams Award for Coach of the Year. There's a good chance of rain and thunderstorms today. Otherwise, it'll be cloudy with high temperatures around 80. Tonight, it falls to around 70 and more rain is possible. Tomorrow, showers in the morning and thunderstorms also possible in the afternoon. We'll have highs in the low 80s. Right now, it's 72 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from your part-time controller, specializing in nonprofit accounting. Your part-time controller helps nonprofit organizations with their accounting needs, remotely or in person. More at yourparttimecontroller.com. From Indeed, Indeed is committed to helping businesses of any size attract, interview, and hire candidates all in one place. More at indeed.com NPR. And from the sustaining members of this NPR station. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Leila Faudel. Western Native American tribes are in court today in Southern California trying to stop construction on a would-be lithium mine. If completed, the mine would be the largest in the country, and it's designed to dig up a valuable metal used in things like the batteries on our smartphones. But the federal ground where this mine is being constructed, it's sacred land to Native Americans. NPR's Kirk Sigler reports. At Thacker Pass, near the Nevada-Oregon border, activists staged a month-long protest this spring, frequently standing in the middle of a road blocking Lithium Nevada's initial construction work. In this Facebook video, Max Wilbert points toward the rocky, sagebrush-covered mountains, believed to be the site of a bloody massacre of Paiute people by the U.S. Cavalry. Over the last two months, Lithium Nevada has been bulldozing directly through that massacre site, destroying the artifacts, disturbing Wilbur, the Wilbur, who founded Protect Thacker Pass, points down to Derice Sam, an elder from the nearby Fort McDermott, Paiute, and Shoshone tribes. She's standing stoically in the middle of the dirt road, holding an eagle staff. You know, Mother Earth, what they're digging for here, those are her jewels. The jewel here is lithium, a key component for electric vehicle batteries and considered a strategic mineral by the U.S. government. Reno Sparks Indian Colony Chairman Arlen Melendez says once again Native people are being asked to get out of the way for American progress. It's almost like we're going backwards in the respect that Native Americans are getting as far as those sacred sites, you know. Melendez's small tribe has played a big role in the court battles to stop the mine, which was initially approved by the Trump administration and supported by the Biden administration. Lithium Nevada, which declined an interview request citing today's court hearing, has said it's followed all federal environmental laws, and the company is hiring workers from local tribes. 2,500 miles away from the remote high desert in New York City, Lithium Nevada's lead attorney recently spoke at this mine financing conference. She predicted the company will be clear of all legal hurdles by summer and the mine will be fully operational soon after. At the conference, metallurgist Corby Anderson with the Colorado School of Mines listened to that with interest. If we don't permit and get this mine going, what happens to the next one? Do we wait ad infinitum? Meanwhile, there's these stakes in the ground to create electric vehicles and require their use. Yeah, we're going to have to go somewhere to get the lithium. 
A Thacker pass puts the Biden administration in a bind. They need lithium for the energy transition, but the president's interior secretary, Deb Holland, the country's first ever indigenous cabinet member, frequently touts in speeches like this that Indian country finally has a seat at the table on lands decisions. Because their voices, perspectives, and knowledge deserve respect. The Interior Department declined NPR's interview request. A frustrated Arlen Melendez of the Reno Sparks Colony says they've yet to get Holland's ear. We want her to come out here at least to explain to the uh, tribes as to what she can do, you know, besides remaining silent on it. It's looking less likely that tribes are going to be able to stop or even delay the lithium mine for more studies of its cultural impacts. That frustration boiled over June 7th at Thacker Pass. This video posted to Facebook shows an activist confronting a company man driving a large dozer. You have fun bringing that equipment and Native American people protecting their burial sites. Local authorities made arrests for trespassing and now the company has sued the activists. It's yet another court battle that may take months to play out even after today's separate appeal is resolved. Kirk Sigler, NPR News, Los Angeles. The man who killed five people and injured more than a dozen others at an LGBTQ nightclub in Colorado Springs last November will spend the rest of his life in prison. Anderson Lee Aldrich was sentenced without possibility of parole. Abigail Beckman is covering that story. She's with our member station KRCC. Good morning. Hi, Steve. Um, There have been so many mass shootings that I feel obliged to get you to remind us what happened in this particular one. So Club Q is a long-standing place for LGBTQ plus people in Colorado Springs to gather and celebrate as a community. It's been open for 20 years. On November 19th of last year, Anderson Lee Aldrich went into the club and began firing indiscriminately. And in less than five minutes, five people were shot to death. Yeah. Dozens of others were fleeing for their lives. Three patrons inside the club actually tackled the shooter and held him down until police arrived. And since then, there's been no real question that Aldrich was responsible for the shooting. Well, if there was no question, how did this play out in court? Well, the shooter pleaded guilty to five counts of first-degree murder and 46 counts of attempted first-degree murder. There was also a plea of no contest to several bias-motivated crimes, and that's the term that Colorado uses for hate crimes. The judge in the case handed out a sentence of five consecutive life sentences, plus a whopping 2,000 additional years in prison. Um, 2,000 years? Yeah, that's right. So state judge Michael McHenry addressed the courtroom and talked about how this country was founded on the idea that all persons are created equal. The judge actually told the shooter their actions reflect the deepest malice of the human heart. And the local district attorney says it's the second longest prison sentence in state history here in Colorado. The longest was that of the gunman in the Aurora movie theater shooting, and that's where 12 people were killed. 70 others were injured in that shooting in 2012. What have you heard from victims and survivors of this shooting? Yesterday, we heard courtroom testimony from survivors and relatives of victims for almost four hours. And after that, I spoke to R.J. Lewis, who works for Club Q, and was at the venue the night of the shooting. Today, I feel like justice has been served legally, but I do hope he has to suffer the pain that we victims have to suffer every day. There's not a morning that I don't have to wake up thinking that five of our friends and family members from our community is no longer here because of him. And at a press conference after the hearing, Jeff and Sabrina asked and talked about their son, Daniel. He was one of two transgender people killed in the shooting. The parents said they were amazed at the number of friends their son made in his short time in Colorado Springs. 
And they all said, you know, Daniel helped them, especially when uh, he had friends that were like transitioning like himself. And he would coach them and tell them how to do it and, (laughs) and be supportive. Abigail, you mentioned somebody who works present tense at Club Q. Is it reopening? That's the plan, hopefully by the anniversary this November. Club owner Matthew Haynes said the decision to reopen has been really difficult, but he decided this act of violence is not where Club Q's story should end. Here he is speaking at a press conference yesterday. Over 20 years, there's been tens of thousands of people have gone through there. Tens of thousands of people have made their friends. They've reconciled within themselves their feelings of sexuality, their feelings of gender differences. It's so important that continues because unfortunately, even with this ending today, the mission of hate isn't ending. He said safe spaces are still needed and the shooting won't prevent Club Q from being that space for generations to come. Abigail Beckman of KRCC, thanks so much. Yeah, thank you, Steve. This is NPR News. Coming up in 10 minutes, the Marketplace Morning Report looks at how states, including Massachusetts, will spend $42 billion in new federal infrastructure funding to expand high-speed Internet access. Cloudy and windy today with showers and thunderstorms possible. We'll have temperatures around 80. Tonight it drops to the upper 60s and there's a chance of more rain. Tomorrow another cloudy, windy day with rain and storms possible. It'll be in the low 80s. Right now it's 72 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Babson. Top ranked in entrepreneurship by U.S. News & World Report, Babson's MBA prepares you to tackle global challenges. Babson.edu slash MBA. And Plymouth Rock Assurance, who believes auto and home insurance should be straightforward and works to assure their customers at every step. PlymouthRock.com slash WBUR. You could soon have the option to pick up your Amazon order from the coffee or flower shop around the corner. The online shopping giant says it's recruiting small businesses in cities, including Boston, to help with its new hub delivery program. Amazon drivers would drop off packages at the businesses for customers to pick up later. The company says businesses could earn thousands of dollars in extra income through the program. Crews are pausing construction of a new surgical pavilion at Haywood Hospital in Gardner. Hospital officials want more time to change the project's legal and financial structure. The Telegram and Gazette reports the pause comes just weeks after a change in leadership at Haywood Healthcare, which owns the hospital. When it comes to giving charity, Bostonians like donating to organizations that focus on human services, health, and education. That's according to a new analysis from Boston-based Fidelity Charitable. The organization says in 2022, donors were motivated to help with humanitarian crises around the world. That includes the fallout from Russia's invasion of Ukraine, natural disasters, and financial hardships caused by inflation. It's 845. WBUR supporters include members of the Massachusetts Energy Marketers Association, committed to reducing carbon emissions with clean, renewable bioheat fuel, mybioheat.com, and the Masters in Applied Analytics at Boston College. Flexible, rigorous, relevant. Help manage data and insights to shape industry. bc.edu analytics.
This is WBUR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shanoi. School's out for the summer for Massachusetts's K-12 students. For many, this school year was a lot closer to normal than the last few years. There were no COVID-19 mandates or abrupt school closures. WBUR's Carrie Young caught up with students and educators from across the state who reflected on the past year. Jack Musharelli says his first year of high school at Canton High was meaningful. The freshmen got to play saxophone in a jazz band and ran cross-country. The timing was perfect for me because I got into high school right when like things were back to normal. People who just finished sophomore year, definitely that class is like a bit reserved because their eighth grade year, it was 2020 to 2021. People were hit harder by it. For Jimmy Marino, who just wrapped up his junior year at Chelsea High School, the year was an opportunity to socialize more with his peers. Our school community really started um, rebuilding itself back up from the COVID pandemic. So like this year, there's been a lot of involvement within increasing like school pride and increasing school events. And even down to the younger students, it was a relief not having to social distance at lunch or wear face masks at recess, as Framingham second grader Layla Osho says in her own words. The school year was great. We have lunch, recess, and snack with everyone in my class. And for Laura Weiss, a second grade teacher in Framingham, this past school year marked a huge turning point from all of the health protocols that defined the pandemic. This year just feels like there's this weight off of your shoulders. We're not doing COVID testing weekly. There's, I think, less heightened fears around things because we have more information. So I think kids have been able to get more into a routine of what it is to be at school. But despite all of the little joys of school life and the reestablished routines, there's still a bumpy road to recovery ahead for many. Enrollment is down in schools across the state, and in many districts, students have lost ground in math and reading skills. Maria Fernandez, the assistant executive director of the New Heights Charter School in Brockton, says while students and teachers were happy to be together and learning in person, some days this year were challenging. We've seen an uptick in behavioral issues. We've seen an uptick in just um, mental health challenges with our students and staff, right? Like there's just been so much that our students are dealing with outside of the academics um, that it's been really tough. Still, there are many reasons for students at her school to feel optimistic. Samuel Rico, who just graduated from New Heights, says the predictability and consistent routine of the past year provided a strong foundation for his next chapter in life. He earned several college credits through the school's early college program. Rico says he now feels confident in his ability to succeed in college. He heads to Emerson in the fall. I'm really looking forward to living on campus because I feel like, is it really college if you're just going to be at home in front of a computer? Thank God I don't have to do that. And I'm really looking forward to like being able to spread my creative wings. Now that a full school year has passed without a major health-related disruption, some educators say they're looking forward to the day when the pandemic is a distant memory. Weiss, the second grade teacher, says she's slowly getting there. I also think the further we do get from the pandemic, the more we're going to see progress and things sort of becoming more routine and less of this like pre-pandemic, post-pandemic, but just this is how school is and we're glad you're here. Here's what we're learning together. For now, anyway, the focus for these students and teachers is summer break, getting rested and recharged for what they hope will be another normal school year. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Carrie Young.
You're with WBUR. Coming up at the top of the hour, it's the BBC News Hour. They'll have the latest on the attempted uprising last weekend in Russia, plus an investigation into racism and sexism in the sport of cricket. It's 849. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by BU's Metropolitan College, offering part-time graduate programs in health communication, 100% online. Learn storytelling and media strategies vital to health marketing and communication. Learn more at bu.edu met. The military ended Don't Ask, Don't Tell 12 years ago, finally allowing gay troops to serve openly. Before then, thousands of veterans were discharged for being gay. Most are entitled to VA benefits, but many have never received them. Getting a letter from the VA thanking me for my honorable service was like, it's spiritual for me. I'm Ari Shapiro, that story on All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen today, starting at four on 90.9 WBUR. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Tuesday morning. President Biden says the U.S. had nothing to do with an attempted uprising in Russia by a mercenary group. Prosecutors in Idaho say they plan to seek the death penalty for a man accused of murdering four University of Idaho students last fall. And Massachusetts Governor Maura Healey is in Ireland this morning to address the Irish Senate. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR mobile app. WBUR supporters include BMW. The BMW i4 has a range of up to 301 miles. It's 100% electric and 100% BMW. Cloudy with gusty winds today, near 80. There's a chance of showers and thunderstorms throughout the day. More rain is possible tonight as it falls to around 70. Tomorrow, cloudy, windy, and a chance of showers and thunderstorms. It'll be in the low 80s. Right now, it's 72 degrees in Boston. A new stock exchange on the way will work to reduce income inequality in America. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by UiPath, providing organizations the UiPath AI-powered business automation platform. More at uipath.com marketplace. UiPath, the foundation of innovation. And by UKG, an HR payroll and workforce management solution designed to help make a fairy tale workplace a reality. UKG, our purpose is people. I'm David Brancaccio in New York. First, states are now off to the broadband races to spend $42 billion in federal infrastructure funding to expand high-speed Internet access. The Biden administration published the list on how much each state gets to reduce digital divides. Marketplace's Mitchell Hartman reports. Nearly a quarter of American households don't have high-speed Internet at home. Colleen McLean at the Pew Research Center says those least likely to have access are people of color, those with low income and less education, and rural residents. Lacking home broadband is a major disadvantage for things like getting schoolwork done, looking for jobs. Colorado will get $826 million for its infrastructure build-out. State Broadband Office Director Brandy Ryder says that'll be enough to get high-speed Internet to nearly 200,000 Colorado households, including rural folks on farms and ranches. They're running broadband over old DSL copper cable phone lines. Ryder says poor city neighborhoods lack infrastructure, too. These are folks that live in our urban areas on the wrong side of the street as far as broadband connectivity is concerned. Colorado will also try to narrow the digital divide by making Internet service more affordable and expanding access in libraries and community centers. I'm Mitchell Hartman for Marketplace. 
Facebook's parent, Meta, has long been into virtual reality goggles, not to be confused with Google's. Now it's launching a subscription service for virtual reality games, a per-month fee for Quest Plus. Marketplace's Novosafo has that. Meta's virtual reality subscription plan is not exactly the metaverse that CEO Mark Zuckerberg envisions, where people work and play all in the same virtual world. But it is an attempt to boost its flailing Quest VR headset, which has yet to catch on outside of the video game world, despite a price cut in March. So why not lean in and offer video gamers a subscription plan, Quest Plus, launched yesterday. It's $8 a month or 60 bucks a year to play two featured games a month, like Walkabout Mini Golf, which takes place in a strange, trippy world, or the shoot-'em-up game Pistol Whip. The subscription plan comes just three weeks after Apple launched its own headset, the Vision Pro. Analysts expect slow adoption of that device as well. I'm Novasafo for Marketplace. Looking at the market screens, Dow futures are down a tenth percent, but S&P futures are up a tenth of a percent. NASDAQ futures are up four tenths percent. Oil is down. Crude is uh, 68.50 a barrel, down one and a quarter percent. GM had closed its big Lordstown factory in Ohio, but with great fanfare during the Trump administration, an electric truck company took it over. The news is the EV company has filed for bankruptcy protection after talks broke down with partner Foxconn, the huge tech company based in Taiwan. The maker of the Endurance electric pickup truck is now looking for a buyer and suing Foxconn, alleging a pattern of bad faith. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Amazon Business. From small business to big enterprise and everything in between, Amazon Business helps simplify the supplies buying process. Amazon Business, your partner for smart business buying. And by JLL, whose offerings are backed by global data and intelligence, which can reveal unique opportunities for investors in commercial real estate. JLL.com. See a brighter way. And by Total Wine and More, where you can find a new favorite Chardonnay, sparkling wine, or tequila. Spirits not sold in Virginia and North Carolina. Drink responsibly. Be 21. The New York Stock Exchange and the NASDAQ market grabbed the spotlight, right? But there are 13 stock exchanges based in the U.S. in late-stage planning now. A new one called the Dream Exchange. Once licensed, it'll be America's first minority-owned and minority-governed exchange. It'll be a place where smaller companies can get access to investor capital and among the goals, reducing the racial wealth gap. Joe Sakela is founder and CEO of the Dream Exchange. Welcome. Hi, thank you for having me. If someone has a business that's gotten to a certain scale, one option is to get investment from public shareholders. You want to list in that situation on a stock market. There are many stock markets, some pretty famous ones that are out there already. Tell me how Dream Exchange offers something different. Our concentration is really creating capital opportunities in the mid cap and small cap marketplaces, which is something that's died off for decades. We just want to give more options to the small entrepreneur as well as to the American investing public to get in early in good companies that will grow and expand wealth for the original investors and founders as well as make it available to the general American investing public. So a key differentiator, who you're trying to attract and the problem you're trying to solve is about scale, allowing smaller businesses to go public. But what about specifically minority-owned businesses? Yeah, so that's really something that differentiates us. 
We've been working in the Black community for, you know, more than two decades, and we really understand some of the unique challenges that are faced by minority business owners. And really, it's not a place that minorities have ever sought capital. So there have only been two companies in the 230-year history of the New York Stock Exchange to become public. In the history of Western civilization and capitalism, there have only been two minority-owned firms that had gone public on the stock exchange? On the New York Stock Exchange. So today, there's probably about 6,300 listed companies on stock exchanges across the country. People think going public and registering shares with the SEC, there are a lot of companies that do that. But reaching a stock exchange is a very different phenomenon because you have to meet certain listing characteristics and qualifications. There have only been about 12 ever in all stock exchanges that are minority-owned and controlled companies to reach a stock exchange. And that provides a lot of barriers because, you know, depending on the day, there's between, you know, 25 or $30 trillion in funds on the public capital market exchanges. So the Dream Exchange solves a myriad of problems by opening access to public capital markets for smaller companies, especially the minority and underserved communities that have never really reached those markets. Joe Sakela is founder and CEO of the Dream Exchange. Thank you very much for the time. Thank you, David. And in New York, I'm David Brancaccio. It's the Marketplace Morning Report from APM American Public Media. Showers and thunderstorms possible throughout the day today, otherwise cloudy and near 80. Tonight we may see more rain and it may dip into the 60s. Tomorrow, cloudy and windy with storms possible throughout the day. It'll be in the low 80s. Right now it's 72 degrees in Boston. We're coming up on 9 o'clock and the BBC is next. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Comcast Business. Providing businesses with cyber threat security designed to keep devices protected. Comcast Business, powering possibilities. I'm here now, host Robin Young, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, 89.1 WBUH-Booster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.